If you have a Bible, if I can encourage you to turn in it to John chapter 12, and if you want to use the, the Bible in front of you, if you want to turn to page 899, that's really where we're going to be this morning. I encourage you to go there. Now, this morning, we're continuing this series that we're basically asking the question, why did Jesus come? And what we're doing, what we're trying to do is to answer that question, why did Jesus come, from his own words in the Gospel of John. And I think when we think about his answers, we need to realize his answers to that question, why do we come, I think tell us what's really important to him, what he says really matters. Like if he came and did all the things he was going to do, there had to be some reason, something important about it. I think he's telling us that. And if it's important to Jesus, I, I think it probably needs to be really important to us. At the same time, I think his answers to that question maybe should tell us some things about hey, maybe what is important to Jesus is telling us what we really need. That Jesus came because there's some things he knew we needed and he came to give us those things. It'll tell us what's really important to us. You know, I think part of the, the value or benefit of this Advent season of taking time to kind of pause a little bit and, and consider and think about Jesus' first coming and then to anticipate his second coming is it really gives us a chance to to, to do a tune-up or, or to recalibrate the motor that's driving our lives. Because so many things can go on in life and we can get caught in so many things. But am I really focused on the things that are the most important and what truly matters? Am I recalibrated so I'm lining up there? That's what I hope we are doing. In fact, folks, my prayer this morning is that through the words of John 12 that we're going to look at, that we would realize that I believe God is inviting us even this morning to maybe make some vital changes in our attitudes or vital changes in our actions because Jesus is saying, here's what's really important and here's what you and I need. Well, having said that, let's jump in and look at his second explanation. We looked last week at John 10, this week at John 12. How is Jesus explaining why he came? John chapter 12 and verse 27, Jesus said these words. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Now Jesus is saying these words in front of his disciples, but he's also saying them in front of a crowd. Okay, He is declaring he came for a purpose, that there is a reason why he came. Well, what's the reason? Well, look at verse 28. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. In very compact words, Jesus came so that his Father would be glorified. Christmas happened. The Advent scene of Jesus coming as a little tiny baby happened. It's the unfolding plan of God, and all of that was happening ultimately so that the Father could be glorified. Jesus came to glorify his Father. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by that. I mean, Lily read some of the verses from Luke chapter 2 that are tied with Jesus coming, what the angel said to the shepherds. Let me read verse 13 and 14 again of Luke 2 to remind us, hey, here's why Jesus came. And then suddenly there was an, with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying... Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. 
from the angel's declaration all the way through what Jesus is saying in John 12. He's saying, look, I came to glorify God. Now, when we talk about glorifying God, maybe one way, this is a helpful way for me to think, but what does it mean to glorify God? What it means is that Jesus came to put on display for all of us, for all of history and humanity, to put on display God's beauty, God's greatness, and God's love. Now, there's an old saying related to God being glorified, and it goes basically like this. If God is glorified, that's for our good. God being glorified, God's beauty and greatness and love being put on display is really good for us. It's for our benefit. Folks, I honestly believe if Jesus came to glorify God, that really matters to him. And if that really matters to him, if that's really important to him, it should be really important to us that God is glorified. But folks, I don't believe this is just an issue of it's important. I honestly believe that you and I need Jesus. We need Jesus to come. We need God to be glorified. Why do I say that? Why do I say you and I need God to be glorified? That this is not just something that's a nice addition. No, this is essential. We need him glorified. Why do I say that? Well, I say that because since Genesis 3 on, you and I have lived in a world that is trying to offer us so many things, saying, hey, these things, this is what's truly good. This is what you really need in your life. If you're really going to have life, you need this in your life. Now, we could describe that and use words like the world offers us a lot of idols. The reality is there's all kinds of things that are offered to us by our culture, by our own lives, by all things around us, saying, if you have this, your life's going to be amazing. In essence, that's what the serpent was trying to tell Adam and Eve in the garden, that, oh, God's holding out on you. You need this. Now, that this could be a whole lot of things. There's a reason why we live in a world that saturates us and overwhelms us with so many sexual things because it's saying you need all of that to be good. We live in a world that says, hey, you need all kinds of stuff to be good. We live in a world that says, you know what, you should be in control. We also live in a world that says, you and I should have comfort, that our life should be bliss. Then if you have those things, your life will be amazing. Now, to some measure, all of those things probably seem attractive, and, and maybe there's some benefit to us that we do get. But here's the challenge. Here's the wrinkle with all of those things. They don't offer us lasting good. They might offer us something that's good for a moment, but it's not lasting. What you and I need, what you and I truly need is a good that is lasting. You could say a good that is eternal. And there is only one who can give us that good. And that is God. Which is why you and I need God glorified because in a world where there's so many counterfeits, we need to see the one. We need to see true beauty, true greatness, true love. We need that on display so that instead of getting sucked in by all the counterfeits, 
we are drawn towards and long for the one that is true. We need this in our lives. Again, we need God to be glorified. We need his greatness. We need his beauty. We need his love displayed. Why? So that we'll embrace what is truly good. We'll embrace what God has for us. In a nutshell, folks, the answer to today's question of why did Jesus come is this. Jesus came to glorify God. That is amazing. And it also is for our good. Now, this is kind of funky. I've never said this in a sermon, but in a nutshell, that's the sermon. So if you wanted to leave right now, you would have the big idea of the sermon. Jesus came to glorify God, and that's for our good. Now, when you talk about a nutshell, though, a peanut shell, there's two nuts inside a peanut shell. So if you're satisfied with just the nutshell, you can go. But Jesus adds some more things that are kind of nuts in the shell. So what I want to do is take a few more moments, crack open the shell, and find out what are the nuts inside. And those nuts inside really are connected to what verse 27 and verse 28 talk about. Because I think verse 27 and 28 raise two questions we want to answer to some degree. One of those questions is, why did Jesus say he was troubled? And the other question is, how is it that Jesus glorifies God? How does Jesus put on display God's beauty and love and greatness? So let's talk about why was Jesus troubled. Let's start there. Let's kind of look at that nut first. Now, if we're going to understand that nut, we probably need to set the scene of what's going on. So look with me at John chapter 12, verse 20, down to verse 22. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So there are some Gentiles, people that are non-Jews, that are gathering at the time of the Passover in Jerusalem. They're in, in, they're in Jerusalem, and they want to see Jesus. So Peter and Andrew go to ask him, hey, Jesus, will you see these guys? Jesus responds, verse 23. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, I don't know this for a fact, but I got to think that was not the response that Peter and Andrew were thinking. You know, hey, Jesus, these guys want to see you. What kind of response would you expect? Well, okay, I'll see them tomorrow at 3 o'clock, or I won't see them. But that's not the response they get. Somehow, when Jesus hears these guys want to come see him, he says, look, we are now at the climatic hour of history. This is the hour. This is an incredibly important time. Something about these guys coming, so to speak, and knocking on the door is about Jesus saying, it's now time for me to be glorified. It's like, what exactly is Jesus talking about? Where's he going with this? Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus, in essence, is telling us, hey, I am going to put on display God's beauty, greatness, and love 
by dying. And when he dies, his life, his death, excuse me, is going to lead to an enormous amount of life. He's going to be this wheat that falls into the ground and dies, and yet all kinds of things come out, all kinds of life, all kinds of fruit is born from it. We ask the question, how, how is that then connected to this troubling Jesus? I mean, what exactly is Jesus saying here? Well, what Jesus is describing in verse 24 is his death. It's a little bit hidden, but that's what he's describing. Which means, why would Jesus be troubled? Because the only way for Jesus to die so that much fruit, much life is generated is there's a clash between Jesus dying a brutal death and doing God's will. Because see, God is the one that sent him to die. See, Jesus is troubled because the hinge of history, everything in that matters is now coming down to rest on Jesus' shoulders. Some of you are familiar with Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. This is the exact moment. This is like the exact prayer. He is feeling the weight of everything on his shoulders. He's feeling trouble because there's huge weight on him. And we need to understand, Jesus came to glorify God, and he does it through his death. He's got this weight on him. Well, the question is, what are you and I supposed to do with it? Because that's exactly... Jesus doesn't want us to get into all kinds of deep debate about it. He wants us to respond to it. So verse 25, Jesus keeps talking and says this, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus is saying, if you know a grain of wheat's going to fall in and much life is going to be generated from the death of that, you need to respond to that. In essence, he's saying you have one of two choices you need to make. You can make choice A, and that would be, hey, I'm going to love my life. Well, loving my life doesn't mean, hey, I love the life I have. It's really talking about I'm going to love my life, meaning I'm going to control it. It's going to be about me. I'm going to be focused on myself. In contrast, option B, I guess you could say, would be instead of loving my life, I'm going to hate my life, which means I realize I don't want the life I have. I want something better. In essence, I don't want a life I'm controlling, I'm leading. I want a life God's leading. I'm going to seek God. And if I do that, that leads to the eternal life Jesus is offering. Well, maybe another question, because Jesus keeps going there. It's like, how do you express, are you making option A or option B? How do you express your choice? Verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. To, to choose God to choose the only one that can give us the lasting good we need, we need to choose to go from being self-focused to serving. Another way to say that the way Jesus describes it is, I serve Jesus by following him. I serve Jesus by submitting to him, by letting him be the one in control of my life, by me following him. John is telling us, Jesus really is telling us, 
that the proper response to his troubled soul, when we realize he's troubled because of what he is offering us and the weight that places on him, our proper response to that is to repent of our sins and trust Jesus alone as our Savior. And when we do that, Jesus says, God honors us. And what that means is God is going to bring his goodness into our lives. When we trust him, when we lean on him, when we follow him, God's goodness comes into our lives. And we receive his incredible goodness. See, Jesus being glorified, Jesus putting on display all those things about God brings God's goodness into our lives. Please don't miss the point. We need God to be glorified. We need Jesus to be glorified. We desperately do. Because it's through Jesus' death that God's eternal goodness is made available to us to know, but not just to know, to experience and live in. We need that to happen for our good, for our benefit. That leads me to ask a really important question. Have you, have you decided between loving your life and following Jesus? Have you made that choice? See, Jesus died to give us eternal life. Jesus is not another one of those cheap counterfeits that you can kind of compare these different knockoff brands saying, well, I can get a good deal on this one or do I choose this one? It's not really a fair choice because Jesus is not the counterfeit. He is the real thing. And he offers us what we desperately, desperately need. So again, Jesus put on display God's beauty, God's greatness, and God's love so that you could receive it and you could know his goodness. Have you responded to that? And if you've responded to that, are you continuing to follow Jesus? And if you've responded to what God has done, are you sharing it with other people? Are you sharing this incredible story of God's goodness so they too can receive it? Jesus was troubled because the weight of history was on his shoulders. Everything depended upon him doing the will of God. And Jesus bore that weight. He bore that weight so that you and I could see God's beauty. You and I could see God's greatness. You and I could see God's love. And so that you and I then could be offered God's goodness for all of eternity. Why is Jesus troubled? We try to answer that question out of verse 27. But then in some ways, verse 28 makes us ask the question, how is God glorified? I mean, Jesus is saying, Father, you know, glorif be glorified. And the Father says, I have been and I will be. And say, so how has that happened? What does that look like? How does Jesus' death put on display God's beauty and greatness and love? Well, following verse 28, God's saying, I'm going to glorify my name. Look what happens in verses 29 and 30. The crowd that stood there and heard it, they heard this voice from heaven said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. 
Now God vocally answered God's, or God vocally answered Jesus' prayer from verse 28. The people didn't understand. They, they didn't quite comprehend. And so what is it happening? Jesus wants to make sure they don't miss it. He's saying, this is for your benefit. You need this. You need to know how my Father is glorified. So in essence, in the next few verses, he's going to say, here's four ways my Father is glorified. Here's how God is going to glorify himself for us to see in ways that really are for our good. Well, what are those? Well, way number one, God is glorified through judging the world. You know, the operating system of the world since Genesis 3 on has really been about being in rebellion to God, being in rebellion to our creator. And the height of that rebellion, of us being in rebellion to God, and the full force of evil, the full force of sin seems to be connected and really on Jesus dying. It's all coming down on him. That's why he feels the incredible weight. And you'd say, wow, that looks terrible for Jesus. Well, what does verse 31 say? The first part of verse 31 says this, now is the time of judgment of this world. Jesus is telling the crowd of people, his death is not his defeat. His death is a judgment of the world. You say, how can Jesus be judging the world if it's all cascading down on him? Well, John the Baptist said some words early in the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verse 29, that may help us see how could this be. It says this, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God, notice this, who takes away the sin of the world. In his death, Jesus isn't defeated by sin. He is defeating sin. Through what Jesus is doing on the cross, why he came as a baby and grew up to go to the cross, was so that the operating system of this world could be judged. Sin doesn't win. God wins. See, the sin that has ravaged families and workplaces and friendships and churches, the sin that has ravaged individual lives and just kind of left devastation is judged. I'm going to guess at some measure all of us have experienced something that has hurt and has been hard and we're marked by it. And it's like we walk in a sense with a limp. And it's like that's never going to go away. That's what it feels like. It's never going to be dealt with. It's never going to be set right. Jesus is telling us the world's judged. I'm setting it right. God's glorified. It's set right. Sin doesn't win. Way number two, God is glorified. God is also glorified by casting out Satan. Look at all of verse 31 with me. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. The last thing I would ever want to do would be to try to read the mind of Satan. You know, I have no idea what Satan thought when Jesus was born. 
And I'm guessing, but I'm thinking if Satan was looking at things unfolding early on Good Friday, he was probably getting ready to have a celebration. He's thinking he's winning because the one that's supposed to be the Savior is headed to the cross. And that looks like Satan's triumph. But Jesus seems to be saying, no, it's not. Now, in verse 32, we're going to read in a minute, it will say, Jesus will say, I'm going to be lifted up. Now, part of it is he's describing there literally, he will physically be lifted up on the cross. That's true. But that word picture of being lifted up isn't just about going on the cross. See, being lifted up means I'm raised above those, which Jesus is saying, I'm going to be raised above. I'm going to the place of authority. Jesus, through his death, is taking back what Satan had stolen. And the truth of the matter is, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, all authority has been given to me. Jesus has taken back all authority. Satan doesn't have authority. In Jesus dying, he kicks Satan to the curb. That's an amazing thought. He kicked him to the curb, which means... Instead of us living and cowering in fear because there's an enemy of our souls, we don't need to go there anymore. See, God's beauty, God's greatness, God's love are displayed by Jesus dealing with Satan and defeating him. Satan doesn't have authority over us anymore. Now, please, I am not saying Satan doesn't exist and isn't around because he is. First Peter chapter 5 tells us he's like a roaring lion looking to someone to devour. He still wants to hurt us. But here's the thing, we don't need to live in fear of him. What is it that defeats Satan? It's Jesus' blood. It's Jesus' death that defeats Satan, according to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11. Jesus triumphs in his death. Because Jesus has authority. We can stand against our enemy, clinging to Jesus and clinging to what he did on the cross. He came to provide that for us. God's glorified in that. Satan doesn't win, God wins. Way number three, God is glorified. God is also glorified through revealing the way of salvation. You know, this whole nutshell nut thing was kind of started by those Gentile Greeks kind of saying, could they see Jesus? And the honest truth is they didn't really get an answer to their question. At least in verse 23 they didn't. But they really do get an answer to their question in verse 32. Look what it says. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, notice this, will draw all people to myself. Now, presumably, the, the Gentiles came to Jesus because they thought he had something to offer. Like, there was some benefit to interacting with Jesus. And the honest truth is, they were right. There is benefit to interacting with Jesus because Jesus has something incredible to offer. He has salvation. Through his death, Jesus was offering Jews and Gentiles, offering humanity the incredible gift of salvation. I mean, think about it. To a world that has been operating in rebellion to the God who created them, to the God who loves them, 
Instead of God saying, I'm done with you, God sends his son to step into the world to do what was necessary to provide forgiveness of our rebellion and to reconcile us. Family. To give us a, a seat at the table on Christmas Day. To join with him. Ask, what is the beauty and greatness and love of God look like? It looks like Jesus making it possible for us to go from being separated to reconciled. To go from being spiritually dead to alive in a way that is true life. John adds an editorial comment in verse 33 when he says this. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, the words kind of death in part mean Jesus was telling the crowd, hey, he is going to be lifted up. He's going to go on and be crucified. It's a part of what he's saying there. But more so, by kind of death, Jesus was telling them that his death would lead to glory, a kind of death that will bring glory, a glory that a sinner can be drawn into salvation, a glory that we receive an amazing gift from God to where we're awed by God. Way number four, God is glorified. Once Jesus wants us to see this, is God is also glorified through people becoming sons of light. Now, when Jesus talks to crowds, especially as the Gospels unfold and we get in the second half of Gospels, a lot of times the crowds are a little bit confused. They're not quite understanding. And that's really what's happening. They're hearing Jesus say these things, and it's like, yeah, that's good, but they're a little confused. So verse 34, they speak this way. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Now, at this point, they're trying to figure out. They, they are attracted to Jesus. They think he's this amazing one. He's the Christ. But how can he be the Christ if he talks about dying and being lifted up? Like, they understand he's talking about being crucified. How can this be? They're, they're confused. They're trying to make sense of it. Now, here's what I think is odd to me. They're asking Jesus a Bible study theology kind of question. He doesn't answer it. Why? Why doesn't he answer it? Let me suggest to you there's a reason why he doesn't answer it. It is not wrong to want to understand more. Okay, it's not wrong. But the bigger need in their lives, the bigger need in our lives is not necessarily to know more. The bigger need in our lives is to respond to the truth we've been offered. We need to respond to what's been offered. Look at verse 35. This is where I'm kind of getting this idea from. Verse 35, so Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. 
Jesus is saying to the crowd, look, you've been offered light. I'm the light. I'm offering myself to you. And you need to respond to that by trusting me now, by putting your faith and trust in me. And in Jesus' mind, when the light is offered, that's not an offer you and I should ignore. Like, we can put that off to the side. We'll come back to that. No, that's not what Jesus thinks. See, he realizes if you and I ignore the light, we really are setting ourselves up to be overtaken by darkness. And if you're overtaken by darkness, that's never going to generate a good outcome. It leads to confusion. It leads to not knowing where you're going. You're walking and wandering in the dark. Folks, we need to understand when we choose not to walk with Jesus, when we choose to ignore God and his word, we will not find good. And here's the amazing thing about Jesus. Remember, he came to glorify God. And if God's glorified, that's for our good, which tells us Jesus wants things for our good. He wants that for you and me. So verse 36, Jesus said this, Will you have light? Believe in the light. Why? That you may become the sons of light. You know what? If we choose the light, if we trust Jesus, something amazing happens in our lives. We become sons We become reflectors or we become relays of Jesus' light to the world around us. We become sons of light. We become like a bunch of little flashlights. Or just because we want you here Christmas Eve at 4 p.m., the lighting of the candles, you become like a candle that lights up the world around you with God's light. The truth is, you and I can become a part of God's beauty and greatness and love being put on display. If you have trusted Christ, you need to understand, as you leave this room, God is sending you to your home, to your neighborhood, to your school, to your workplace, to the gyms you work out at, to the coffee shops you hang out in. He's sending you there to show his beauty, his greatness, and his love. And realize when you and I do that, you know what happens? People see God's glory. They see what they truly need. Now, folks, in these verses, there's a, there's a whole lot of stuff. There's a whole lot of rich stuff. There's a whole lot of truths in these verses. And part of me is like, Ooh, where do you draw the line? Where do you kind of stop? There's a measure to which maybe you and I have more questions. There's more things we want to know. And I think it's a great desire to want to know more of what God's Word is saying. But I do think the bigger question ultimately becomes, what do we do with what we looked at? Not just, I need to know more. What do you do with what you've been given? Another way to say that is, how should our time in these verses, how should it really get integrated into how we live life tomorrow? Let me offer one very broad thing and then one thing that's maybe a little more specific. So in the broad thing, I think you and I to integrate this into our lives need to keep in mind that amid deep trouble for Jesus, that he said in his own words, amid deep trouble for Jesus comes God's glory and our good. That needs to impact how we think about, how we approach Christmas, in his deep trouble, God's glory comes 
good out of that. That's broad. Now let's get specific. I'm going to guess that some of you this morning may be feeling some deep trouble, not the deep trouble of Jesus, the weight of the world is on you, literally, because it was on him, but maybe the, word, the weight of your world is on you, and you're in deep trouble. I think you and I need to understand this morning that through our deep troubles, through our deep troubles, in those moments, God can display his beauty and his greatness and his love. He can put that on display to you and through you, he can put that on display to other people. And, see, he's gloried, he's glorified even in your deep troubles and he can bring his goodness into your life. Now, for that to happen, you and I need to make that choice to follow Jesus. And then we wait for God to honor us. We wait for God to bring that goodness. He said he will. Will we lean on him and follow him? And folks, I don't mean to in any way say, oh, this is easy. Because if you're feeling deep trouble, it's not easy. So I want to ask you to do something. Okay? On the screen will be my email address and my phone number. And so I'm going to ask you to either email me or text me, or if it's easier, I'll have my little notebook with me out there in the atrium. Please tell me how I can be praying for you in your deep trouble so that you will see God's beauty, God's greatness, God's love to you so other people see it because you're following Jesus and God's goodness is going to show up in your life. Can I ask you to do that? Because folks, our prayer in a sense as a church is this. We want you to see God's beauty. We want you to see his love. We want you to enjoy his good in your life. And it's not because we're as a church going, oh, that'd be a great thing. No, we want that because Jesus came to glorify God. Jesus came to put that on display because that is the greatest thing there can ever be. And folks, that is what you and I need. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful to you for your love and for your kindness, and for your mercy. And Lord, I would pray and ask, as we think about why Jesus came and realize that Jesus came for us, but he came for an even bigger purpose than just us. He came so that all the world could see the greatness and glory of God. And I pray today, I pray and ask, Lord, that you, through your word, have put that in front of us, have put that on display. And I pray in seeing that display, we would want to follow Jesus. We would want to hate life instead of love life, as Jesus said. And we would want to follow you and receive from you your goodness in our lives. 
Jesus, thank you for coming for us. Would we rejoice in you and rejoice in your incredible goodness to us. In the very precious name of the Savior, we pray. Amen.